because I know God has freely through Christ given me all things. Amen? Powerful way to live keeps my heart at peace. Hallelujah. So, Father, we thank you today that you have freely given us with Christ all things. Therefore, we choose today to live generous lives. Um, just to, to extend your kingdom in the earth through generosity and gratitude. And Father, we just thank you for taking the tithes and offerings of your people and pushing forward your purpose in the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. You guys excited about Jesus today? Hallelujah. We're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you want to go ahead and turn there. If you're just jumping with us this week, we are um, we are starting a series on Psalm 51, which is why we're in 2 Samuel. Um, no, we're taking two weeks to read the backdrop of Psalm 51, which is um, David's great prayer of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, we just ask that you would open our hearts today. Lord, if there are distractions from this world, if there's any blindness over our eyes and our hearts, we just ask right now in the name of, the name of Jesus that, Holy Spirit, you would come and begin to remove those scales, those blinders. Allow the Word of God to penetrate our hearts today. Father, it was one of our... One of our goals this year to make sure that we honor your word as holy. And so we've been praying that as we come to it, you would help us to have a reverence. Lord, we believe your word is inspired, God-breathed. It's profitable. It's for our edification, for teaching, for doctrine, also for correction, discipline. So Holy Spirit, as we study your breath, we just say this is your time. Lord, my words will fall short. So we just ask that you would speak. We want to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Somebody say amen. amen. What happens when a nation denounces God? Particularly what I want to talk about this morning, or at least open with, or what are the intellectual consequences of a nation that begins to deny God? Part of me was shocked to hear uh, many over the last weeks doing the Pledge of Allegiance without removing the under God phrase. And the other part of me thought, eh, we're, we've been there for a while now. We don't, we don't remove under God from the pledge. Of course we wouldn't. But I want you to remember that during this series, we're not focusing on what anyone else is doing. This, what, what we believe God is after is the heart of His church turning back to Him. And so what I want to do is not necessarily focus on the ideologies of, um, we say, the coast or those who are opposing God, but what we want to focus on is our own hearts and whether or not we have honored and revered God. When God is abandoned, um, there are some intellectual consequences. Um, the existence of God creates certain absolutes. Um, and so, for instance, 
I'm talking off the cuff here. But for instance, the scientific method, it arose out of a Christian society. Um, because in, in, in using the scientific method, you are assuming, um, the consistency or uniformity of nature. And so, if you embrace evolutionary theory, for instance, using the scientific method is actually really strange because the fundamentals of evolutionary theory is things are always changing and shifting and bumping and moving. And so, for instance, the scientific method is very much founded on uniformity of nature or that God holds all things together. He upholds the earth. Um, when it, as it pertains to morals, there are really interesting things that happens when a nation begins to deny God. Um, Morality, when you talk about universal moral standards, have always been historically founded upon the nature of God and the revelation of His Word. And so when I say murder is wrong, I'm not appealing to my feelings, I'm not appealing to my ideas, I'm not appealing to my politics, I'm appealing to the revelation of God and in His nature as being the life giver. And so when I say murder is wrong, I'm not appealing, I'm appealing to an absolute moral standard that's above me and it's above you. And so in our universities, what's crazy is to think the Ivy League schools that were once seminaries, by the way, they were all founded to train people in Scripture. In our Ivy League schools, there's a real move against any absolute, absolute truth, but particularly an absolute moral standard. And the idea is that if you begin to propagate absolute moral standards, then you are oppressing people who don't think like you. And that idea is, is bizarre. And so in our universities... Oh, I'm, I'm reading this week a commentator, Bill Arnold. Um, he was, he was, and this was in the late 90s, he was talking about a study from 1997 in uh, the U.S. News and World Report. And what he, what he said was that he, he referred to college students in 97 um, as having what he called absolutophobia. Meaning the, the fear of saying anything is absolutely true or, or a fundamental unwillingness to make any moral judgment. And students in our universities in the late 90s, so think about how far we are along now. I don't know if you know, but I was born in the 90s, by God. That's a long time. In the late 90s, they were so unwilling to make moral judgments that they refused to call anything evil, murder, rape, ethnic cleansing. Um, one professor said that, that in his 20 years of educating, he never met a single student who denied the existence of the Holocaust. But he estimated in 1997 that at least 20% or up to 20% of his students were unwilling to call the Holocaust ethically or morally wrong. He says, he quotes one of his students, of course I dislike the Nazis, but who is to say they are morally wrong? Now what, what's taught in our universities in many cases, not always, but in many cases is what's taught is that societies have the right to collectively come together with their consciences and then and create certain moral standards that their culture will now live by. Societies have the right to come together collectively and determine what is right and wrong. They, they build law. Now that idea is garbage because societies like Germany, for instance, collectively decided in, in government that they would eliminate 
the Jews and other minority groups, those with disabilities. And, and we would say from the absolute moral standard of the Word of God that murder is wrong. That a disability, the, that the individual with disability Down syndrome, for instance, should be honored, upheld, protected, pro- provided for by society. That individual in no way should be eliminated because of their disability. And so we have nations today who say, we've eradicated Down syndrome. No, you didn't eradicate Down syndrome. You just aborted all the children with Down syndrome. So 20 years ago, students are unwilling to make moral judgments concerning Nazi Germany. Now again, this series is not about the elite in our university towers. It's about us. We are willing, at least the evangelical Christian community, is willing to say the Holocaust was morally evil. We are still willing to make moral judgments. But are we willing to have another man or woman look us in the face and tell us that our actions are evil? Because what I think is going on is we don't agree with the premise, right? The premise of, of this ideology is there's no absolute truth. And we don't agree with that premise, but we've lived now for decades in the expression or the outworking of the premise. And so on one hand, we're willing to, to make outward moral judgments concerning the Holocaust. But on the other hand, if a preacher ever begins to talk about sexuality or marriage, the preacher is all of a sudden judgmental and has no right to talk to you about your sin. Now, if sexual immorality is, is evil, then it's evil no matter who says it. And so I don't, you know, there's this kind of idea, and y'all forgive me because I'm yakking now. There's this kind of idea I grew up with, uh, only God can judge me. Well, well, I want you to know that I don't need a powdered wig or a robe to tell you that your adulterous relationship is evil. And that's not judgment. That's only appealing to the absolute standard of Scripture. Now, what I'm afraid of is that in the church, of course, we believe in absolute truth, but we've so lived in the outworkings of that that we get very offended if anyone ever look us in the face and call us back to the absolute standard of truth found in God's revealed Word. And no, we're not relativists. But it may be that we avoid, like the plague, like the coronavirus by God. Any man or woman calling us out, forgive me, on our crap. So we're not moral relativists in doctrine, but are we moral relativists in practice? When we begin to make excuses like, you don't know my upbringing, or how dare you make a moral judgment, you don't know what I'm going through right now. Now, I'm all for compassion and empathy and tact in the way that we call one another up, but I don't need to know your upbringing to be able to tell you that a pornography addiction is destructive and evil. Okay, and you, we could we could appeal, I understand. I really do. I understand that there are issues in the past that may have led up to, but at some point there is personal responsibility, and the church by God needs to hear that. At some point in your adult life, you take personal responsibility, and you you allow the standard of truth to bear weight, and you either do something about it or you don't. I think the biblical posture is to live in Christian community that invites, that welcomes, that embraces this kind of loving correction. 
Learn to, I tell you all the time, you need to learn to love the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You've got to learn to love the conviction of the Holy Spirit. It is the kindness of God. When a father, I, I, we were out in Old Town last night with our kids, and my kids, um, they don't listen, and by God, they don't look before they cross the street. And so one of my kids walked out in front of a, in front of a flaming golf cart. Man, that golf cart was flying. And, and I'm screaming, hey, hey! You know, I rarely raise my voice. I'm screaming and yanking that little girl up. It is, it is the fact that I am obsessed with those little girls that causes me to scream when they're in front of danger. God loves you deeply. When He begins to poke and prod, learn to appreciate it, man. Learn to receive it as God's loving kindness. And in the same sense, do you cherish Christian brotherhood and sisterhood where a brother or sister in Christ loves you enough to look you in the eye and tell you that your patterns are destructive? This, after all, is foundational and fundamental to discipleship. We are called not to be entertained. Y'all listen to me, by God. You are not called to sit in a chair and be entertained by any man or woman on a stage. You are called to be disciples of Christ Jesus and to make disciples of Christ Jesus. And it is fundamental to being a disciple and making disciples to reform, conform, repent, turn, allow others to lead you, press you into Christ's likeness. It's fundamental. You cannot be a disciple of Christ or make disciples of Christ if you are not willing to call others on their sin and be called on your own sin. But again, we're so far down in this society that gets totally offended and triggered if anyone ever dares talk to you about the fact that you are wrong. And I want you to hear me say, as your young, chatty pastor, there are times in your life when you are wrong. And I can make that absolute judgment, not because I have a powdered wig or robe, but because the Word of God is absolute truth. And if you're living in sin, friend, you're living in sin. And that's not condemning or judgmental. That is the kind... You guys, I don't know why we have to talk about this, but we do. I don't like doctors. I hate doctors. Because they, they have needles and knives. You think I want to visit you with your needles and knives? But there are times when I need a doctor. And there are times where you come to church and you say, I don't want to, that church is judgmental. I don't want to be around. I don't want to go to church. But there are times where you need the church. Sometimes the church has knives. But the knife by God is to cut off the tumor of sin that's destroying your life. And you better learn to receive that kind of correction and discipleship and loving confrontation. We are not more relativist. So last week we discussed David's great sin. He slept with Bathsheba, a, a woman who was married to one of his mighty men. And then because he couldn't orchestrate things so that it looked like Uriah, the mighty man, got Bathsheba pregnant because he got her pregnant, he decided that he'd have to have Uriah murdered in order to cover up his sin. And then 
He, after Uriah dies in battle, because David orchestrated it, what David does is he redeems Bathsheba. He marries her and pretends like the pregnancy is him taking care of Bathsheba. And maybe, some scholars say, maybe it looks like David's now given Uriah a son. That was part of redeeming a widow, was to marry her, provide for her, and give her a son for the man who passed. And so now David's utter wickedness looks like this great act of righteousness and compassion. And we closed last week with the words which said that God saw and God was displeased. And so this morning, what we're going to read is the prophet Nathan coming to David, looking him in the face, the king, coming and looking the king in the face and saying, you are in sin. Calling a spade a spade. You need people in your life who love you enough to call a spade a spade every now and then. And if David, the king, is not above correction, by God, friends, you are not above correction. So let's read 2 Samuel chapter 12. We'll read verses 1 through 15 this morning. Y'all okay with me so far? The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, because he had no pity. Nathan says to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and then give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin, and you shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. First, and the Lord sent Nathan. And the Lord sent Nathan. We've talked before about the mysterious ways that prophets pop up in Scripture. For instance, Elijah would just show up and it will just say, and Elijah came and Elijah has no introduction. He has no lineage. It's very common in Scripture when a man's introduced into the narrative to give his lineage and his background. But there are times in the Scriptures where the prophet needs no, he needs no background. He needs no genealogy. The, the, only, the only introduction he needs is that the Lord sent him. 
It's God who sent Nathan. Now, David is a king, and Nathan is a prophet. And I'm no prophet, and you're no prophet, and you're no king, and by God, I sure ain't a king. My kids say my wife is the boss of the house. But sometimes when you get tangled up in sin and you begin to walk down a road of destruction, the kindness of God will send a man, will send a woman, a righteous man or a righteous woman who comes with words of correction. And sometimes those words are sharp. Sometimes they're bathed in compassion. That often has to do with the temper, the temperament of the man or the woman. But I want you to learn to not get so caught up in the flavor of the presentation. If the words are true, let the words be true. Proverbs twenty-seven twenty-six says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. If your friends only exist to flatter you, they may not be friends at all. So God sends a man, a prophet, to confront a king who's currently used his power, his standing, his position to rise above accountability and law. God sends a man. Now what Nathan does is fascinating. It's really interesting. He brings a case before David. One of David's responsibilities, roles as the king, was to judge and to um, settle cases, particularly cases that, that are hard. And so Nathan brings the case before David. And he, he appeals to David's nature as a shepherd. You remember David was a shepherd for the, the early years of his life. And, and he says to, to David, Look, in, in, in your kingdom there are two men. One is prosperous, has plenty, has herds, sheep. One was poor, had a single sheep, and he loved it, let it sleep in his arms, cared for it like a daughter. And a traveler came to the rich man. When a traveler comes, it was... Um, cultural custom to prepare a meal for that traveler. Remember, they, they were supposed to take care of the stranger. And so the traveler comes, but the rich man knows he has to take care of the traveler, but he doesn't want to use his own sheep. So he steals the poor man's single lamb and prepares it, cooks it to feed the traveler. The rich man, in his selfishness, steals the poor man's only lamb, the one he deeply loves, kills, prepares the meal. Now, David is outraged, he's furious, and he pronounces a royal judgment. Let the man die, he says in his anger. And as he settles from his knowledge of Torah and of law, from David's knowledge of the Scriptures, he says that the thing should be repaid fourfold. That was the standard that God gave in the law concerning theft. If someone steals, it should be returned fourfold. And so David has now condemned the action and he's actually appealed to his own biblical knowledge. Nathan launches into his rebuke. You are that man. And now he's got David by the arm. You're the man who's murdered, stolen another man's wife, and murdered and you are fully aware of God's law. Now, the rebuke is three-layered. We'll walk through the layers really quickly. Um, the first layer is this. I want you to hear me for a moment. God reminds David of his own faithfulness towards David. So God says to David, before anything else, I anointed you as king. 
I delivered you from the hands of Saul. I gave you wealth. I prospered you. Then he says this, and I would have given you much more. I want to say to you this morning that God has given us peace for decades. We have prospered economically, financially, far beyond any nation in all of history. We have had liberty and freedom. We have known the steadfast kindness of the Lord. Can I also say to you this morning that by God you have the cross of Jesus to reflect upon? David has known God's kindness. But there is holy blood shed to pay for your sin. And when you and I live in open rebellion, we first dishonor God's revealed kindness to us. When David's in sin, the first thing God said is, Have I not been kind to you, David? And as a nation, and as a Western church, I think in our current state, the first thing we need to hear is, God has been incredibly faithful, sincere, kind, generous. The Lamb of God, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, was crushed for your iniquity. And I want you to consider, men and women of God, this morning, that when you live in open rebellion, you dishonor the graciousness of God that has been shown to us and particularly the graciousness of God that's been displayed on the cross of Calvary. God says to David, I have been so good to you. Why do you dishonor me now? Now Nathan's rebuke then rehearses David's sin. So the first thing he does is he reminds David of the goodness of God towards him. The second thing he does is he rehearses David's sin. He says, you struck down Uriah, you stole his wife, and the kicker, the, the punchline of the rebuke is really here. Why have you despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in his sight? To reiterate, David's judgment was a, um, was a biblical presentation of, of Torah. So when, when David says, pay it back fourfold, David is citing the word of God. So God now sounds, says to David, Why have you despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in his sight? You knew my word. We have more Bibles than any generation in all of history has ever had. You have more Christian teaching. You have more access to doctrine, to sound word. You have, you have more Bible than anyone's ever dreamed of. It's not that we don't have access to the Word or that we're unknowledgeable concerning the Word. American Christianity needs to consider whether or not we have despised the Word of God. That Hebrew word for despise, it's obviously translated as despise. It sometimes is translated as, as being careless with. Have we been careless with the Word of God? 
And we as a local congregation, again, it was one of, one of my goals. I felt like in prayer, God pressed in my heart. One of the goals for this year was that we would really honor and revere God's word. We would recognize that it's holy. We would study it with the best of our abilities, not using it in sloppy ways, slinging around, but we'd really try to honor it. I, I want to just lay it before you. I think it was the word of God for us in this season that you would honor God's word again for me and for my family, that we would honor God's word again. The third part of the rebuke is Nathan pronouncing judgment. God will raise up evil against David from within his own house. Remember Absalom, David's son, will one day run David out of the city. And four of David's sons die prematurely. Many throughout um, Jewish history and Christian history and commentators have said that David has four sons who die prematurely, that, that they, they, they tie that with the fourfold. You, you'll have to repay the lamb fourfold. And so David murdered, and now four of his sons die prematurely. David's unbroken track record of blessing, of success, of favor, of, of prosperity is now broken. The favor of God over David's life is, begins to pull back and the Lord's hand of protection over David will be removed. But even in judgment, there's mercy. This is, we'll start to land here, so just lean in for another moment. David responds with, I have sinned against the Lord. In Hebrew, David only said two words. It's short, concise, plainly honest. I have sinned. I'm in the wrong. If you remember, let me jog your memory for a second. When Samuel confronts Saul, Saul has been at battle against the Amalekites and he was supposed to destroy everything, to utterly destroy everything. And um, he didn't. They kept some cattle and some sheep. He, he, they took some, they looted. They took some things for themselves. And Samuel confronts Saul and says, why have you disobeyed God? And Saul says, Oh, I did it. I obeyed the Lord. What do you mean? We went, we fought, we won, we did it. It's good. And Samuel says to Saul, Why do I hear the bleeding of sheep in my ear and the lowing of cattle? Saul says, Oh, we brought those to sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel, you know. Samuel says, Does God not desire obedience above sacrifice? And so um, Saul, too, is confronted by a prophet. But Saul dances, he lies, he covers, he twists. And God, the, these moments in Saul's life are what lead to God saying that he is going to essentially unanoint Saul. Saul is no longer the chosen king. But David doesn't respond like Saul. He doesn't cover, he doesn't hide, he doesn't lie and twist. His only response is, I have sinned against the Lord. So Nathan says, the Lord has put away your sin and you won't die. But his latter years certainly lack the luster of his early years. But David's not, not unanointed. He's not unchosen like Saul. He's still promised that Messiah will come from his reign. He's still called Jesus the Son of of David, although there's there's consequences to David's sin, his his repentance keeps him in the favor of God. 
The way that you respond to confrontation matters. We wind down. If I could just talk application just for a moment. Again, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to overread us into the story. We're not David. We're not. I get, I get all that. But I am drawing on the idea that David is a, a metaphor for Israel. And as anyway, I won't get all into that. But but David teaches us patterns. There are patterns that we learn from David's life. Principles from David's life. I think that as God's people decay or backslide towards sin. It is God's pattern to use individuals within the Christian community to come against us. Iron sharpens iron, we like to say. But, but, but iron sharpening iron, that kind of coming, there, there's a coming against. A saint looking you in the face and shooting straight who allows you to make no room for compromise, that, ki- that type of coming against is often the kindness of God. And it's a testimony to the sincerity of the individual who's coming against you. Good friends do not allow good friends to commit adulterous acts. I, will know, I won't sit back and watch my best friends have adulterous relationships because I love them, number one. I love their wives and their children. And I understand that adulterous relationships are destructive and will destroy their life. And so if a good friend goes down that road, my love for them demands of me that I grab them by the collar, look them in the eye, and shoot straight as I know how to shoot. But we avoid that kind of relationship like the plague, man. I think within Christian community, there is a place for prophet-like correction from one brother to another brother. Men of God in the room, you need to have men of God in your life who are willing to call you up. You have got to. And don't hide. Don't manipulate. Don't start with your excuses. You need to own what you've got to own. Women of God in the room. You need to learn to own your sin. Respond to the correction, to the coming against of a woman of God who is righteous. There is certainly Christian discipline, church discipline in the New Testament that comes from elders. Paul brings all kind of correction throughout the New Testament. I want you to hear me say that your Christian maturity the vigor of your spiritual life, it will largely be determined upon whether or not you embrace the sharpening that the Lord brings. How do you handle correction? That will change your life. How do you handle correction? I think the church is called to push back against one another in a loving way, in a kind way, We do everything we can to communicate in humility. So hear me, some of y'all are just mean, and you're like, by God, Caleb gave me permission to be mean today. I'm not, if you're just mean, you got a problem there. But with compassion and humility and honesty, we've got to get to the place where we're shooting straight. And your sin will want to say, you don't know me. You have no right. You have no right to tell me how to live my life. And I want to tell you, I have every right to tell you how to live your life. 
Because this is absolute truth. I'm not telling you how to live your life based upon my own opinions or ideas or philosophies or learning or family dynamics. I'm not telling you how to live your life based on any of that. I'm telling you that sexual immorality is evil because God says it's evil. And we've got to get to the place where we're not living in the kind of relativism that says, oh, you don't, you, how dare you? Now, Many will say, I don't like that church because it's judgmental. And a church can be judgmental. It, it can. And so we don't, we, we don't want to be um, condemning, judgmental, we're better than everyone else. There's, there's tact, brothers and sisters, listen. We need to have tact and to understand discipleship. If someone comes into the room with major drug addiction and they get saved today... Um, he, you don't beat their head against the ground and say, get rid of that profanity now! Right, right? Like, like it, life is it's a process and there's, there's got to be tact and, and, and people do need to feel loved. And so, but, but within the process of discipleship, at some point your profanity does need to be dealt with. Okay, that's, I don't know why that's even an issue, but it is. Ephesians says plainly not to let filthy speech come out of your mouth. I don't know why we have to talk about that, but many want to argue that profanity is okay. It's not, biblically speaking. Paul said that you shouldn't use profanity. So church can be can be condemning and we do want to avoid that we don't we don't want to be condemning i want to preach the gospel of grace which says that you can never earn your salvation you guys know this you don't earn your way into heaven you actually don't get brownie points by dressing a certain way or using it. none of that matters the only way anyone makes it through those gates is through the blood of jesus and trusting in the cross that is the foundation of our message but when god says to david why have you despised me there's a place in the Christian life where we can begin to ask the question, why do you despise God? He went to the cross for your sin, washed you. Why do you dishonor Him now? So there are judgmental churches. I agree with that. And we, we, we are far from that today. If you're, if you're around here, we're just not a judgmental church. But in response to that, some... It is wildly popular in, in Western Christianity for churches to kind of create this no-judgment zone. And you know Planet Fitness when it's like, I need to go to Planet Fitness because I'm sure out of shape. And it's like, you go to Planet Fitness because you're out of shape and the people that are in shape are not supposed to tell you that you're out of shape because you don't want to hear that. Okay, that doesn't work in the church. All right? Um, but there are churches that are saying, no-judgment zone. We love you as you are, and we do, by God. By God, we love you as you are. I, I have lived through some mess. I, I know there's no problem. I, I will put all of my sin on display for you. No, no problem with that. I'm, I'm not higher than thou. I'm not. But, but we don't want to say, we love you in your sin. Just stay in your sin, and this is a great place to get a good pat on the back and a warm cup of coffee. Like there's there's got to be a place where, where, we, where we get to the point where it's, no, you're out of shape. And you're dishonoring God with your lifestyle. And you need to turn. And so, on one hand, we're saying, we don't, we don't like judgmental church, and that's, that's okay. But on the other hand, we're swinging the other way and say, this is a judgment-free zone. Nobody's fat in Planet Fitness. <laughs> and, 
And it's like there, there's a point in my life where I need, I need you brothers in the Lord, brothers in the house. There are times where I need you to get in my face and to say, Caleb, your, your attitude is not honoring to the Lord. Please do it with tact. But I need you. You hear me? You are responsible for me. If I fall in sin, it's your fault. Okay? Totally. 100%. But, but do you know what I mean? I, I, you guys know that Seth and Pastor Seth and Micah, they're some of my best friends. And I say to Seth all the time, I say, Seth, if I, if I, if I fall in sin, you are to blame. If my heart grows cold towards the Lord, it is your fault. You will stand before God for my spirituality. Because when you live in community with people, when I live in community with Pastor Seth or Pastor Micah or, 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 or Sue and Bill and the elder, when I live in community with my church, when I begin to live in sin, they see it. You see it. And we've got to have the boldness to say something. I read, and again, I'm, I'm yakking. I'm going to close, I promise. Um, I'm reading Jonathan Edwards this week, just reading to read. And I was reading a sermon from, oh, Joseph, when he's in the house of Potiphar. And um, Potiphar's wife, you know, she keeps trying to seduce him. And Jonathan Edwards was commenting on Joseph fleeing the, the house. You remember running, she grabs his garb and he, he runs from the woman, like just refuses to be caught up in that sin. And Jonathan Edwards was, was saying, how destructive is sin in our lives? That's how we ought to respond. He was saying that, that the way that Joseph just, just totally avoids it because he, because he knows that to enter into an adulterous relationship with that woman is his own demise. And you've got to learn to look at sin that way. We have to learn to look at sin that way. And then he says, the way that a, a man or woman guards their wealth. He says, um, you know, if, you, if you've saved all your life and you've got a big 401k, or like you, you don't invest in the, in the dumbest company with a, with a CO that's got half a brain cell, right? Like you invest your money in a place where you're sure it's going to be safe and where it's going to do well. And you, you, you're intentional with your investments. And Jonathan Edwards said, how much more should the glory of God matter to us? How much more should we be concerned with God's glory and His nature? Because the first thing God says to David is, you've despised me. And Jonathan Edwards was saying, consider when you go to sin, whether or not you are dishonoring the glory of God. Now, when we begin to live that way as a church, then we start to recognize that, that when a brother and sister goes down a road that's sinful, they are going to their own destruction. And because we live in Christian community, I'm, a, I'm watching it. And so I now have some kind of responsibility to say something. And there, when a Christian community begins to live that way, close enough where they see one another's patterns and speak to the sin, now we're beginning to do discipleship. And now we're beginning to allow the prophetic nature of the church, the disciple correction teaching nature of the church to bear fruit in our lives. Do you hear what I'm saying? The church is called to disciple you. If you avoid her, it would be as if David's running away from Nathan. Do you run from the church 
or do you lean into Christian community? Are you a discipler who's making disciples while being discipled, allowing brothers and sisters in your life to see what's going on? That's why we talk so much about transparency, because when we sit down at a table for a cup of coffee, I need to open up with transparency and let you know what's going on in my life. And as I'm transparent, I'm inviting a brother in the Lord to talk to me. Are you transparent with the body of Christ, or do you hide from the prophet? Seth, will you come for me? Thank you, brother. God bless you. You're so holy. In conclusion this morning, when you exit today, there, there are going to be tables lined up. You saw them coming in. Tables lined up. We are, we are talking about connect groups today. Connect groups in our church are our way of pushing relationships, community that really builds disciples. We want to have a community within our church that does love and support one another, but also is committed to spurring one another on to honor God because God's glory is at risk. And again, we don't want to just be attenders here. We're not, we're not after that in our congregation. We're not just trying to be attenders. So I want to ask you this morning to browse the tables as you leave. I want to see some of you have maybe attended church for the entirety of your adult life, but you've never actually got grafted into the community of the church. And oftentimes we say it's because that church isn't that welcoming. Well, well here's, here's our welcoming. We've got tables and, by God, we've got balloons. Like, I don't know how much more welcoming we could be. There's balloons. I'm begging you to take it serious. Take it seriously. Get, get in community. Put it on your schedule once a week to sit down with some brothers and sisters in the Lord and to be honest about what's going on in your life. And don't hide from Nathan. Don't act like Saul with Samuel where you manipulate and squirm to try to hide your sin. I say it again, our nation, we're, we're at the place where the church has got to really turn. We have to turn. We, we have to get back to our commission to see the nations come to Jesus and be discipled and live in a way that honor his teaching. So many times in our culture, what's called Christian is so far from the fundamental teachings of Jesus. And we've got to do everything we can to get back to that. So this morning, if you'd stand to your feet, I'm going to pray for us. If you're comfortable, stand to your feet. I'm going to pray. And as we close, if you're sick in your body, I want to say if you're struggling, I, I felt when we were worshiping in this morning, there might be someone who's struggling with particular pain in your neck. You're having neck issues. If that's you, I want to ask you to come to the altar. You hear me? I want to ask you to come to the altar and get prayer. We believe God can heal you. But at the conclusion, we're not going to do normal altar ministry like we would. I'm going to ask you to take this message seriously, put some feet to it, and go out there and get in a community group, a connect group, where people will actually disciple you. I think that's the most honoring thing we can do with this word this morning, is take it serious. So let's pray. Again, if you're sick at all, the altars are going to be open. Our prayer ministers are going to be ready to pray for you.
means something to us. Lord, let it not be said of us that we despise the word of God. Thank you.